0: Hi, my name is Elvis Costello. And I
1: feel splendiferous about being Conan O'Brien's friend. Oh, that's lovely. That's really lovely. Splendiferous. I knew you wouldn't just give me a run-of-the-mill word.
2: is here, hear the yell, back to school, ring the bell, brand new shoes, walking blue. The fence, books and pens. I can tell that we are going to be friends. Yes, I can tell that we are going
1: to be friends. Hello and welcome to Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend. I'm doing my best to have a mellifluous Melifluous. tone, smooth and professional. I'm trying to sound like other people I've heard on podcasts and the radio and I'm in my head now but uh, (laughs) I can't help it. I'm Conan O'Brien, I'm here to please. And uh, I hope you enjoy this audio infotainment. I'm joined as always, by Sona obsession my trusty Hi. assistant. Hi. And also sitting in with us, Sona's assistant. And boy, is that absurd. Because <laughs> he basically does all the work that- He does. Sona refuses to do. David Hopping, how are you, David? I'm good, are you? I'm good. Uh, what's happening? I have
3: a bone to pick.
1: Oh. Oh, now how could you, you've been on maternity leave yeah. for, I think, four years. Oh, I'm um, three months. Yeah, it's weird. For the last three months, things have been- very efficient oh. in my life. Everything taken care of. Uh, good work, David. Oh, thank you. David stepped forward and just started helping me mm-hmm. on doing things that you refuse to do. Yeah. And so I'm stunned that you have a bone to pick with me because I, I think you've had a to pretty- I it is. Yes, yeah, so you've been on the gravy train now for three months.
3: Okay, gravy well, first train. of all, that's a separate thing I have to like complain about is that it's not the gravy train. I'm a mom, I'm taking care of two babies now. So well, I was it's one not of, like I'm I home chilling. Of, I was
1: one of six. And my mom used to put us all in the kitchen, throw a boiled ham into the center of the room, <laughs> and say, good luck to you all. I'm out.
3: Uh, okay. So so tell
1: me about your play. So
3: I can't say that I listened to all of the podcasts <laughs> while I was gone. Sure. Why should you? But you guys released this whole segment about my FOMO. And you're like, oh, we're gonna, you know, and he was, when FOMO, you was winning. FOMO, by the
1: way, for anyone who doesn't know, fear of missing out.
3: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you were uh, you know, talking about going to sugarfish and sending me pictures and stuff. And then you're like, we're gonna do all the things that Sona loves to do. And all you th- could think of was going to see Thunder from Down Under, the male strip show in Vegas. Yes. Drinking white wine and getting high. Yeah. So is is that all you think of me?
1: Uh that is ninety-eight percent of what I think of you. <laughs>
3: Okay, that's fair.
1: No. It, it, you, you, watch you watch TV. What's that? You watch TV. Yeah, you watch TV, uh, but you do enjoy the male body. You used to obsess over any show that depicted men uh, in all of their masculine glory. Obsessed? Gigalos. Yeah, you watched the oh, show Gigolos, yeah, I did. And you used to love your favorite movie that you would talk about all the time was- Magic Mike? Magic Mike. Mm-hmm. And when there was a sequel- you pretty much made me take you and a bunch of your lady friends to see the Magic Mike sequel. Yeah. Which the uh,
3: Midnight Showing. Yeah. As <laughs> soon as it came out, we As went. soon as it came out. Yeah.
1: And so, you love that. You loves 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 your wine. I do love my wine. I and know. we have a picture that was hanging in our office for years of me in the background being swarmed by fans that wanted pictures and they were just like lining up and I was taking pictures of people. <laughs> and you're in the foreground ignoring me with the biggest pour of Chardonnay I've ever seen. Yeah. Just a massive glass and you're sipping it and not helping me in any way. And it was a candid photo. It wasn't uh-huh. a gag photo, it was a candid photo.
3: It was. You know what? Now that you bring all that up,
1: it's <laughs> You pretty, also it's couldn't fair. live without your gummies.
3: It's fair. Okay, relax. I can live without gummies. No, no,
1: since you became uh, pregnant, you stopped. Yeah, um, and
3: and uh, you're right. It is a really tough time for me.
1: Oh, <laughs> is it? Do you really miss? Do you miss it? Do you miss, I miss
3: your- it so much? And I think, oh, maybe I'll just have like half of one. But then I'm like, oh, what if I sleep through one of the babies crying and like mm. needing me for something? And so I just, I don't do it but I think about it a lot. So you know what, maybe you you were right. You
1: know, my wife, of course, uh, we have two kids. And in the early years, her thing was that our door, our bedroom door always had to be open in case somebody cried. And then of course they got older and they stopped crying and they'd sleep through the night and then they got even older, but always, door always open in case anybody needs anything, anything's going on. Yeah. Now my children are, you know, 18 and about to be 16. My son's like 6'3". Still, door cracked open. (laughs) What if he needs us? What if he needs us? If he needs us, he'll smash through his bedroom wall. And then he'll come smashing through our bedroom wall because he's 6'4 and like 185 pounds. If, what do you mean if he needs us? If he needs us, he'll pick up his bed, <laughs> throw it out the window.
2: Oh my God.
3: You know, it's
1: just insane. Well, it's in case
3: you need him now.
1: I know, no. but she's she's never gonna, you know, when they have their own kids and they're visiting us, she's still going to, and, and, and we're like, 110 years old. Yeah. She's gonna be like, we've gotta keep the bedroom door open <laughs> in case they need us. Who needs us? Those people in their fifties. <laughs> what would we do? How would I help them? Would I rip off one of my legs and hand it to them? So they could oh, use no. it as a crutch? Because that's because I can pull it off right now. I'm not withered and old. <laughs> it's absurd. Aww. Madness.
3: I was like. I, you couldn't think of anything else. And I'm like, is that no, all? You're a caricature. Like
1: of me? Yeah. I defend most humans and I say, mm-hmm. well, they're complex. They're three dimensional. I can mm-hmm. make a couple of jokes, but I really can't reduce them mm-hmm. to anything mm-hmm. uh, cartoonish because that's not fair to them. But Sona, it's so great because you really are a two dimensional drawing <laughs> that Aww. likes your wine, huh. your gummies. You love your Armenian snacks. Yeah. And you love to watch male strippers do their thing. Nothing wrong with that.
3: Uh, I'm a simple person. Yes. And uh, I, I love that this hot, started, yeah.
1: I, I love that this started with you having a beef with us and then immediately, uh-huh. immediately admitting that you were in the wrong was, and that we were right.
3: It was accurate. The important
1: thing is you uh, came to Sugarfish, though, Yes, last week. I did. I did. We did have, now, Sugarfish, I, I always explain things because I don't know if people know. Yeah. Sugarfish is an amazing sushi mm-hmm. uh, chain, and there's one right near the podcast studio, and Sugarfish uh, sushi is one of Sona's favorite things. Mm-hmm. And so I've been taking David yeah, there. it's been great. Because you've been Aww. home with me I never kids. had it until. Oh, uh, no, you've never, I mean, first of all, David. Oh, oh here we go. No, <laughs> I, I'm being honest here. David, uh, a man of humble means. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying that in a, I think a kind and gentle way. <laughs> okay. I don't
3: think you are. No, no, okay. David's
1: idea of, <laughs> uh, of good eats is, uh, you know, three sticks of beef jerky. <laughs> And, and he gets to drink the whole Sprite. And so, um, oh so God. we went, I took you to Sugarfish and mm-hmm. you just were, you couldn't believe it. You're like, oh, this tastes so good. And look, they've got, they've actually got silverware on the table. Okay, and
4: okay.
1: he got all excited. And there was a, a toilet there in the restaurant you could use. And um, you, but anyway, it was a big deal for you. Admit mm-hmm. that.
4: I will say, yeah, the rice was warm.
1: The rice was warm, yeah. He just so loved it, and we kept it. And so I said we started taking photographs and sending them to Sona, mm-hmm. who is home. Yeah. Uh, spoon feeding your kids whatever they eat. Spoon now. Spoon feeding already? Are they, are they eating solid food yet?
3: No, they're well, three uh, months old. I forget.
1: I completely forget what age that happens.
3: I think that uh, for us, we're probably going to start doing that at like six. I think. I, I don't remember know.
1: very clearly the first time we fed my daughter solid food. I remember sitting at this little table, just watching it happen. And it was, it's just seeing her expression as she was like, what is this?
3: Yeah. Do you remember what you fed her?
1: It was saltwater taffy. (laughs) 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 On a spoon? With, yeah, with uh, very sharp nuts in it. Uh, No. We were told later on it was a mistake. No, it was some kind of mashed mush. I forget what it was. Mm -hmm. Some, you know, but anyway, seeing someone, a human being experience for the first time solid food. Yeah. And just their mind explodes. It's incredible.
3: everything for the first time.
1: I remember when you took your first gummy
3: uh. Wow. You weren't there. I was there. No, you weren't. It's incredible. I was happy. I had a time machine. I
1: was
4: happy. <laughs> oh,
1: All right. Well, enough blether and blather. We have big show today. Big, big show. Very excited. My guest today is a Grammy award-winning singer-songwriter and member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Uh, he's recorded 31 studio albums over the course of his career. And his latest project, How to Play Guitar and Why, is part instruction manual, part memoir and available now on audible i'm a huge fan of this gentleman i listened uh, to this instruction manual slash memoir and i absolutely loved it because i have my own fascination with the guitar and with this gentleman and his music i am thrilled he's with us today elvis costello welcome You're one of my favorite people to talk to and uh one of my all time favorite artists. So to get to sit here with you and have a thoughtful conversation for six hours. Did they tell you it's six hours? Yeah,
0: I was I, I brought a little bit of uh candle mint cake to sustain me as <laughs>
1: You also, we have a jar you can urinate into at any <laughs> thank point.
0: Thank you, thank you. That well, I carry one all the time anyway.
1: Well, I yeah. saw that, yeah. I saw that, yeah. and uh, it looks sad, Elvis. Yeah. You said splendiferous, and I was listening to, I don't know how to describe it, it's absolutely lovely, how to play the guitar and why, it's available on Audible, and I was listening to it, and it is, uh, of course, because it's you, it's not what one might expect. Yes, you do talk about how one might approach the guitar, but it's also this tone poem about everything and you write no surprise beautifully and you have such great images in there and i'm reminded that anytime i go to the uk if i go to if i go to uh, london especially if i go to ireland anybody i talk to has this lovely lovely way of speaking and yeah. and this I command- think
0: that that, that that that's really confirmed by watching the movies of guy Ritchie. Yes. Yeah, I mean right. Seriously. There, there, well, I mean there's some very creative swearing. You've got to be able to be able to swear creatively if you live in England.
1: Yes. Right? Not just the swearing. And in, yeah. Um and, and the punching and biting too. You know? <laughs> <laughs> beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful bunch pu- punching, beautiful biting and headbutting. Yeah. And of course, I've always loved your lyrics and the way they interconnect and the architecture of your lyrics. But listening to this, it's so funny. And you have these great images that stick with me. You talk about the wonders of the E minor chord and how evocative it can be. And then you talk about how it's like the, the lantern on a miner's helmet in a deep cave. And I thought, okay, damn it, this guy's good. That is exactly what it is.
0: Well, thank you. I I was trying to treat this, I I called it a work of comic philosophy. It might be flattering a little bit to say it's philosophical. But I I don't think anybody would trust me to actually give them a music lesson, just listen to the way I play the guitar. I, I make the point that it's important to keep the inner idiot alive within yourself, particularly if you're going to play rock and roll guitar, you don't want to know what every note is. Right. That's where some of the, you know, they're called happy accidents, not unhappy accidents. Right. You want to be able to surprise yourself. Sometimes surprise other people in a bad way by the horrible noise you're making. But the point of this um, ramble narrative, whatever you would call it, how to play the guitar and why, is to try and get people past that Inhibition to make a mistake that'll lead them to the their pleasure of playing a, a song simply. You can go and study music formally from page one of the theory book and it'll take you very logically through it. But the point I make is that the piano is laid out like a diagram. Mm-hmm. It is a beautiful diagram and all the order of music and the chaos of music is there at a glance. When you pick up a, a, a guitar, much as if you pick up any blown instrument it's it's not apparent you you it's facing away from you for one thing so you're always looking at your hands initially and i'm trying to just prove the point that when you begin in the key of c which many many instructional books of my childhood did because they were married to musical Mm -hmm. theory Mm -hmm. you 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 struggle to play that lovely ringing c chord you get that uh, under your hands and you immediately encounter the chord of f and the yes. chord of f is nearly impossible for every novice and it is truthfully as i say in the in in the piece the reason why the world is not full of happy minstrels but in fact i mean when i say i don't mean minstrels as in the old horrible sense i yes. mean strolling players yes but is um and is actually filled with sadistic dentists and Potatoes, and, and they all of whom have encountered uh, the Court of F, and it th- threw them down a path of, uh, you know, they thought this pain that was inflicted on their soul, they were going to inflict on other people ever more.
1: This is why I thought when I was listening to this, I thought Elvis is talking directly to me for two reasons. One, I'm a narcissist. So I always <laughs> think when I listen to a great man or great woman speak that they're speaking directly to me. Uh, <laughs> and I was, of course. Was. Oh, yes, I know. Yeah. It says dedicated to Conan O'Brien, yeah. which was lovely sentiment. Yeah. Um, and then the second thing is I took up the guitar, probably rather late for most people. I'd started as a terrible drummer, and then I decided when I got out to Los Angeles to start my comedy career. I am in comedy, by the uh, way. Yes, yes. Uh, Just want to make that I, clear. Yes. I have to tell people all the time because it's not... No, a, no, no, no. It's no, not apparent. No, no. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> But, I've, I've warned you about being taller than me. know <laughs> <laughs> you always say that. But it's what I decided was: I need a solo instrument. I need to learn to play the guitar. So I went to uh, Freedom Guitar, which was basically a pawn shop here in Hollywood, and I purchased a 1970s era Yamaha acoustic guitar. Mm-hmm. And I purchased the Mel Bay chord book. Well, that's exactly the kind of chord book that I'm talking about. You know? Yeah. And I quickly realized, I don't want to learn theory. I don't understand theory. Theory scares me. What I want to do is play the songs that I love to hear. And I remember very clearly, if you start in C you've got to then go to F and then to G. Yeah. That's just the way it goes. That's the three chord trick that that will will yield many many songs. The problem is, as you point out, <laughs> F <laughs> F for a novice and even for if you're not a novice, yeah. a proper F requires you to contort your hand in a way well, that you, causes it to explode. I- it also causes you to exclaim and add
0: three other letters to that initial F. <laughs> uh, and, you know, that... that it truly yeah. does. Uh, frequently followed by hurling the said instrument across the room, yeah. dashing it to pieces, which is, as I say, why the, the world is full of frustrated f yeah, you know, the people that struggle, get never get further than F. Now, so it seems like I'm giving the game away. I want to take people down the trail. There's lots of other things I say. I want to people take people down the trail in, in how to play the guitar and why. If you sort of imagine yourself learning C, and you logically have to find um, F as the next chord, if you then allow yourself the luxury of learning the chord of G... Yes. You're immediately ahead of the game because if you switch to the key of G, the key, the chord of C is that second chord you're going to need. Yes. That means you already know it. Yes. So you have that wonderful feeling. Hey, I'm halfway there. The chord of D is actually a very simple very triangle easy. of fingers. Probably the simplest chord on the on the on the whole fretboard, in certainly in the first positions. And at that point, I would say most relatively nimble-fingered people. Um, can learn to play that that sequence of chords, a bit haltingly. And that's when I why I recommend that you s- simply play the guitar for yourself. maybe watching anything. you know, you could be watching something improving, you could be watching some dreadful, history show or something much more sinister or seedy yeah. but whatever hypnotized you're
1: suggesting you. pornography
0: uh, no you suggested pornography uh, I you, did you actually you actually just then I just no, did no, suggest it nothing could be further. I don't know
1: what you're doing later
0: nothing could be further, further.
1: <laughs>
0: um, but the point being that what what you can have your neighbour come and talk to you, particularly if he's boring person, then you don't you know really listen. Right. You can do anything if you teach yourself just to move your fingers until it becomes natural. And one of the things that I had to kind of think of again as I was trying to get to put myself in the mind that I was in when I first learned, assuming that he started in the key of G, and these first two positions were actually relatively simple. It was that mistake that people make is to lift the whole hand from the guitar mm-hmm. in between the chord. You really don't need to do that. You're, you're not about to put it down. Keep your hand just above the strings and after a while you notice that you your hand will just slip across into that position. And before you know where you are, you're playing music. And my thinking and writing all of this is to find an amusing way of saying, this is actually easier than you think. Yes. And then... You get to three chords, and we get to the wonderful illumination of the minor chord. The, in the case of G, the E minor that creates the a million songs based on that chord sequence. After that, it's really up to you. It's up to your own curiosity. You might go on to write a symphony, and you might go back and learn all that musical theory. You might take up another instrument. Or you might be content with those three chords because so many wonderful songs lie within the three- or four-chord range and add sevenths to color those chords, and gradually your chord
1: inventory, so to speak, will just grow. And and you talk about this in... How to play the guitar and why, you reference Hank Williams, mm-hmm. one of the great uh, American songwriters of all time. They call him the Shakespeare of the South. And he's the Shakespeare of everywhere. Well, that's well, yeah. Shakespeare may yeah. disagree with that. Where is Shakespeare if we say that Hank Williams is Shakespeare? It's true, he's fucked. it's true. Well, he's he's long gone, he's not that bothered now, but you're I mean, right, yeah, you're right, right. Yeah. Hank well, only I do, th- I do gone. think
0: he's from Hank Williams is for everybody, you yeah. know. I mean, you have to, as I point out, one of Hank Williams' first national hits was Cold Cold Heart, yes, yes, but it was Cold Cold Heart, a song by Tony Bennett, yes. So he was immediately put himself in. I, I've always argued when people talk about the great American songbook it's it's wonderful that we celebrate george gershwin and cole porter but you can't leave out willie dixon you can't leave out hank williams nope these are the other american music. you can't leave leave out jelly roll morton you, there's just dozens and dozens of songwriters that 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 we we should be grateful they thought of that idea whatever it is hank williams wrote so many unbelievable oh, songs based on yeah. three chords um and and i i chose deliberately a hank song because it's such an emotional song that I think you're, from the outside, you would imagine it must be more complex musically in order to, you know, to render this feeling. But I try to strike the balance in writing the piece and then performing it between genuine instruction, which there is a little bit of genuine instruction, and heartfelt um, feeling for songs like Cold Cold Heart. And I think you mentioned the fact that I'm clearly not American. So I've come to appreciate musicians like Hank Williams or, for that matter, Willie Dixon and countless others from America from the perspective of somebody who grew up on English radio musically and comedically because I think that I might be right in saying radio comedy remained recognizable in a form that my parents would have known with just changes of personality Whereas those same performers in America became television entertainers because television took hold in America much earlier. So the people who I didn't know anything about when I first came to America, I knew who Lucille Ball was. I knew who Phil Silvers was because I really loved Sergeant Bilko. I had never seen Jackie Gleason until I set foot in America. Right. I, I might have seen his name in a movie. Um, uh, cast list, but I didn't know how revered he, he was from The Honeymooners. Yeah. Well, the equivalents of those shows in England were on the radio. Yes. So, of course, they, they contained all of the surreality of m- much more use of sound effects. What American television comedy achieved with yes. slapstick, they had to achieve with sound effects, which is why I was attracted to uh, writing the score, you know, accompanying myself throughout this piece in the spirit of BBC radio
1: comedy, really. You well, know. how to play the guitar and why you're, you're taking people on this journey that was very inspiring for me to the point where when you were talking about Cold Cold Heart and talking about the power of it, I went and got my guitar, it's three chords, mm-hmm. and played along and realized I could have played this song three months into learning the guitar and felt just as... Powerful and lovely as I do playing it now, all these years later, that's how simple it is. Yeah. And you're playing Hank Williams. The power is all there. I know. I, I I've never really
0: understood, you know, like why. I mean, the, some of the songs that they teach you in that kind of play in a day book, which was very common when I was a kid, they they weren't very interesting songs. So they didn't they didn't push you on. No. If you if it's a song that you really love, you have that um, you have that desire. To find out what the chord is that links those phrases together, and and little by little that becomes a way to learn uh, harmony. You know, you are, you start to hear. If you have any kind of natural ear for music, you're going to eventually become curious. That you, you'll try to play a song, and you and the co- the few chords that you do know will not render it. And and that's when maybe you have to consult some sort of dictionary of chords, and you little by little start to piece the, the elements of harmony which a piano uh, trained student of course is taken through but very few people are taught to play just chord shapes on the piano right. they, they're immediately the independence of the hands playing melody in one hand bass line in the other or chords in the in the other in the left hand isn't the same as playing the guitar where you have a choice between learning scales and say you wanted to be Eddie Van Halen you could you you could Practice and practice and practice till you got as fluid as some of half the speed of some of the solos that he played. But you could only play that solo at the end of all that study. It wouldn't lead you back to a full song. My method is taking you from the song and then you, you eventually you're going to know for yourself whether it's in you to want to be that kind of person that cuts loose and finds those other things higher up the neck of the guitar. That's all very thrilling. That's a different study. It's a, yeah. You know, that's why I don't go into it that much.
1: You know, it's funny because I'm reminded that John Lennon and Paul McCartney were steadfast about not wanting people. They didn't want to know what the hell they were doing. Yeah, They very much clearly had this incredible facility with music, and they had their ten thousand hours uh, of playing, and they had the ambition and the creativity, but they didn't want to sit down with someone and have them explain musical theory, and yet look at the the body of work is there. So they approached it in the way you're talking about, which yeah, and, is and, and sheer and enthusiasm, like, a song like Michelle, which has yeah. some
0: diminished chords in it, which would be much more common to the language of jazz uh, musicians. Um, they must have, uh, of I don't know, maybe because the song had this French theme, maybe they heard some music that contained these other voicings of chord, and it's only one note different, you know, in, in the chord, and it just opens a door. It is like colors. Uh, yes. There are people yeah. talking colors when they're talking music. But I, I tried not to get, I did sort of try to, Lay out the musical theory aspect of this in 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 a way that was funny, so that it didn't become indigestible for somebody that simply was curious to know what I felt about it. Because the last part of the title is the why they're playing the guitar. Like some people just like you look good holding an instrument. You know, yes. people will say, "Well, you know, the piano player is hidden behind a piano." That's not kind of going to help me communicate with people. To, if you have something that you have to blow through a saxophone or a trumpet, then you can't sing. You maybe can't. Smi- you can't really smile while you while you're playing those instruments. You have to concentrate. You can smile when you take it away from your mouth, but if you only if you're a singing uh, soloist, right? So the guitar is the obviously it's the show-offs instrument.
1: I used to think I was shallow. Well, I am shallow, but yeah. I used to really think that I was shallow because when I first, I started on the acoustic, then I got my first electric guitar, which for you nerds out there was a Gretsch Tennessean. Ooh, yeah. Pretty 19- fancy. 1964 Gretsch Tennessean that I got for $600 at the time, wow. uh, which today would be worth a lot more. Oh, mm-hmm. Uh awesome. And it's the, it's the same guitar that George Harrison played on their second U.S. tour. But I'll stop there, it goes too far and it's, it's really sad. Uh, but I started to work on that guitar and then I realized I cared more about the look than the sound of mm-hmm. the electric guitar. So I liked a big Gretsch and people would say, well, do you like the tone? And I'd say, I really don't know. I yeah. just know that when I'm holding a big Eddie Cochran Gretsch, I think it looks cool. Yeah. I don't know what you're talking about with tone. Well, I, I did, I, I, I can
0: really sympathize with that because I went a stage further than that when I was a lot younger than I imagine you were if you could afford a $600 guitar. My first ever group I, I formed with my childhood best friend, like a, a man who was like a brother to me, Joel Peterson, and we had a group called the Meteors, mm-hmm. which consisted of one of us hitting a biscuit tin with knitting needles and the other playing what was a, a very impressive Cardboard replica of a Rickenbacker, or sometimes I'd have a bass modeled on a Hofner, cut out of cardboard boxes, glued together. <laughs> and then we would hide a record play behind a curtain and we would play Freddie and the Dreamers and uh-huh. mime along to this. This was like a preparation for a life in show business anyway, because half the time on the BBC, they didn't allow you to actually sing when I became a professional musician. So this mime or lip sync, as you call it in America, was a perfect preparation. But it was all about making the cardboard replica, a flat cardboard replica of the guitar. I mean, I hasten to add, I was I was only twenty six when I was doing this, so it's not as pitiful as it sounds. <laughs> you know, but I was. I
1: was <laughs> At the time, you were fifty two. Yeah, I was fifty two while I was doing it, and you could afford a guitar, but you had gone yeah, quite mad. Yeah, I still mad. preferred with the cardboard. Yeah, and the cardboard guitars, of
0: course, were not that resilient to. The kind of shape throwing, as we call it, in—I don't know whether you call it that over here—the kind of shape throwing that one has to affect while playing the guitar. So any kind of posing with the guitar would immediately bend the rather thinner piece of cardboard that had been cut out to fashion the neck. Now I felt really as if I was in command of the music because I never made any mistakes while giving. Doing you those can't, cards. you can't, because the music was <laughs> there's no from, strings. <laughs> it's coming from behind a curtain. Yeah. But it 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 confirms what you're saying about how good it feels to hold a certain kind of guitar. I remember buying a Gretsch on I think my second tour of America. I bought a Gretsch White Falcon, and I thought, I'll Oh
1: my god, look,
0: I'll look. All I need is the fringe jacket now, and I'll look just like Neil Young. Yeah, and it, all it did was feedback all the way through the first show that I tried to play it on, and I never and I never played it again. I just immediately went back to the shop. I just couldn't get along with it. The
1: either. White Falcon, for anyone listening, and it's going to be a lot of you who don't know, it's uh, Mike Nesmith played one when he was with the monkeys. So if you go back and look at an old monkeys episode, it's this yeah. giant white guitar... Gold and fittings and everything. From a distance, yeah. it's gold and it's got jeweled insets and it's got a a big falcon and it's the most amazing thing. It's, when you get it's up not close, like a thing with a big falcon on it, you know,
0: like I mean,
1: yeah, that's the
0: essential part of anything. Exactly, really. a everything big falcon. Everything should
1: have a large falcon on it. Yeah, uh, I
0: always, you know, carry one at all times. You know. <laughs>
1: You walked in with yeah. a large falcon yeah. uh, and we uh, we immediately subdued Put it. Put it in a cage. <laughs> <laughs> but when you get up close and look at those guitars, they're they're actually very garish. When you get close, yeah. uh, it's it's like seeing a clown, but from like two inches away. It's horrifying. Which is never good. Never good. No. No, Unless that's you're... actually
0: a very frightening childhood <laughs> memory.
1: You've just <laughs> summed it up
0: now. In fact, I have to leave. Uh, uh, I, um, I think maybe I was attracted to it because my first electric guitar was a Vox, and it wasn't a cool Vox either. It was the name Vox attached to this Les Paul copy I bought in Frank Hesse's shop, which is quite a famous shop for yep. people. Uh, Beatles fans will know that. Yes. Um, uh, you know, that, that, that will know this name. It sort of lurks in the Beatles mythology because it's where George Harrison bought his first guitar, I think. When I lived in Liverpool in the early 70s, I, I would go there and try all the guitars on the rack, even the ones I couldn't afford. They had this Rickenbacker that used to have a white card stuck between the strings, said, formerly owned by George Harrison, and I would occasionally block up the courage to ask to play it even though I couldn't afford it. And it would disappear as if it was bought by people. And I think in the end, I got just good enough on the guitar to recognise that it was a really horrible guitar. It was a Rickenbacker, but there was a good reason why George got rid of it. It was just not a good one.
1: So you think it's true? You think it did belong to George? Oh, I think
0: it probably did, but he probably would say, you know what, Frank, take this back. And I bought, instead, I bought this Vox for exactly those reasons. It had fake gold fittings. Yes, the look. It weighed a ton. The it look. It sounded absolutely horrible. And, you know, uh, I struggled on that for a number of years until I found a combination of well, A I, I, I clip-on pickup with an acoustic guitar that actually sounded funkier than than my actual electric guitar. And you ended
1: up, I, uh, I think what's very hard to do, you really know you've made it when you can name the artist and name their guitar, and the two go together. It's Lennon, the Rickenbacker, and it's McCartney, Hoffner, and it's, you know brian jones in that teardrop that white teardrop vox vox uh and you and the fender jazz master like just that guitar i just whenever i see anybody with that guitar i think what are you Uh, doing with elvis costello's i
0: i i that's very nice of you to say but i i think i have to give credit i was playing a i graduated to a telecaster i had a friend who worked for a fender showroom and managed to get me a a little bit of discount on on a Fender, and I played a brand new Fender for a long while, which wasn't again not a very good guitar. And I saw this jazz master in a secondhand shop, covered in furniture varnish. It was very unattractive in its original appearance. And I had seen a, a guitar player from uh, from Cincinnati, Ohio, called Danny Adler, mm-hmm. who was playing in a group in, in London at the time. And he, he kind of he was he impressed me because he could play the guitar part from Clean Up Woman. Betty Wright record, my a little Beaver, the guitar player from Miami, and I'd never heard anybody play that kind of funk, kind of rhythm guitar so so well in person. And I thought, well, that's a bit of a different kind of sounding thing. It's got to so. I have to credit him really as the person that I yeah. saw Foot play at first. I think you'd get a few people who would lay claim to that guitar other than me. Tom Verlaine of Television played one. I know that Fender put out several models. Name for for artists long before they got around to remaking my one. I mean, it was only about ten or twelve years ago that they made a brief, a small run. But I think really the mistake that they made was to recreate my guitar with its original. Can I say ship brown? Furniture <laughs> look. It sounded actually really good, but it looked like hell, you know. And I, I don't really see any young kids. Oh, what I really need a guitar it's going to make me look cool. I think I'll have one that looks like the color of a, a roadkill. You know. That's yeah, what it looks exactly. Like, yeah. I want a fecal yeah. look to my guitar. Yeah, I, uh, that's what's going to make me a hit with the girls <laughs>
1: and the boys. <laughs> Listening to this uh audible book that you made. First of all, it's lovely to listen to you have you have this great melodic speaking voice, so it's very seductive. Listen And, to and
0: several of them it has been pointed out. Yes. Several of them. Yeah. This was pointed out to me by Scott Sherrod, who produced my the, the audiobook version of my memoir on mm-hmm. Faithful Music and Disappearing Ink. And when I began talking, I was the first couple of chapters were set in Liverpool. And when I start to talk about Liverpool, I start to sound like my mother a little bit more. And then the third day I was recording, I had a passage where I had to say, well, I was born in a street that um, my first home when I was a child, a Mm -hmm. baby, was in a street that um, had one of the blue plaques that, that commemorates famous people that lived in that street. Now, this was a very modest street. We lived in a basement mm-hmm. of a boarding house. By this point, the neighborhood had gone to hell. We had moved in. There's the clue. But at <laughs> some point, Sir Edward Elgar had lived, probably mm-hmm. when these houses were, you know, dedicated to one family living in a four-story four building, not broken down into little bedsits. And I started to speak like this. I said on that morning, I got up and the horse-drawn milk float came around early in the morning and parked next to the Morris Minor. And I suddenly started to sound like David Niven. I didn't know how to stop doing it. And, and it's happened to me a few times. I yes. get on a microphone and something comes over me. I, my wife Diana and I did um, a, a season where we played um, cartoon cats mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for Pete the Cat. And on the day that I was playing Pete's father, I had a cold. And it, when I spoke on the microphone, it, it sort of pitched my voice very high. And I, I started, to, started to speak like David Beckham. <laughs> <laughs> I, I say things like, Pete. He's, he's way up can here. You, can you go in the garage and get my rent? <laughs> <laughs> and of course, it was fine. They all loved it. And nobody told me to stop. And then when I went back like a month later to do the next episode, I couldn't do the voice. Right. I mean, it was... I'm not... Clearly, anybody that's ever seen me act knows that some things that I do border on acting. Uh, Not close enough to the border, but they border on acting, you know. But then something happens when I start to read things that I've written down. I find... I can hear my voice changing in in the headphones and I think it's just the excitement of what I'm talking about and sure the the, the idea of hitting the guitar like that I've sort of I'm seeing John Lennon's stance when I'm saying it so I start to speak like more in the parts of my voice that really come from Liverpool you know I hope yeah. that people don't think that it's insincere because I I change my voice a little bit I, I
1: my assumption was that you were a sociopath well, that there you is that no, as well, you had no you had no core personality. I don't
0: have any core personality. What you just a dot just a dot and uh, you, <laughs> you know, just
1: whoever you're with. I the, mean, you've become the, me the, pretty and much the, and
0: the, <laughs> the, the, the well of hatred. Yeah. Uh, that obviously is apparent from the torture that I like to put people through in this.
1: Uh no, it's really it's really fantastic and I I learned so much and I'm such a fan of yours that I thought, well, I'm not going to really pick up anything new about Mr. Costello here. And then I find out that you always wanted to be a songwriter first and not a performer, which I can't believe I didn't know because I think every youngster comes at it thinking, I want to be the rock and roll god. I want to be the one on stage with the guitar. It really surprised me that you came at it thinking, I want to be a songwriter. And then it led to this.
0: Uh, I, I think it's explained by by two things. One of them is from very, very early experience of music as a, as a child watching, um, knowing that my mother sold records. Mm-hmm. And I knew that one of the things that she had to do in those days was to be able to recommend more than one version of a song. People didn't think in terms of covers. They thought in terms of interpretations of songs. So, if you were going to be, be good at selling records, you needed to know the difference between recommending uh, Frank Sinatra or Victor Damone's rendition of the mm-hmm. song, which not just down to whether that person even liked it. People would quite often come in and sing to my mother in the shop, she told me. Like they come in, do you have this? And they go, <laughs> and they wouldn't know any of the words, they wouldn't know the title wow. of the song. And they would just sing the melody of something, and she would have to try and decode it and then recommend a rendition. So you can sort of see that my first impression was that the songwriter was very important. And you have to remember, I'm just old enough that I'm just old enough. That's the important thing to kind of remember.
2: Is <laughs> not that too, the, the, old, not just too old. Not too old just enough.
0: Old enough. Yes. The, the Beatles obviously really. And we talk about Hank Williams, obviously, in the 50s. I didn't know Hank Williams' songs very well when I was that young. The Beatles really changed the, the the whole music business because they wrote their own songs and and it was very unusual for performers to write their own songs, mm-hmm. certainly in english music there were there were fewer of those and then it became the norm, so the two things were going along parallel my my observation of music, my knowledge of my family 's Involvement in music, my mother was in what you'd call here record retail, my father singing on a radio dance band, and again, bringing home sheet music. Well, the sheet music sort of made me feel, well, somebody was responsible for writing this song. I didn't just hear a song on the radio and go, oh, Johnny, Jimmy, Bobby, whoever that is singing, made that up. I, I kind of knew that he didn't make it up until John and Paul came along and then we all knew that they were writing those songs and they sort of stood out from the crowd. That's why I, I love Carole King, that's why I love Bert Bacharach so much because those songs were incredibly popular in England and they would quite often say, here's the new Bert Bacharach song. you know. They wouldn't necessarily always say the name of the artist singing at first and the curious nature of record releases in, in between America and England was that we, there was a little bit of time when the local act could have a hit with a new American song. So you would have Billy J. Kramer and the Dakotas singing Wishing and Hoping. And then there would be the American version, which made the songwriter seem like an important kind of guy. If you could have like two hits in the charts with the same title. Now, somewhere along the way, even when I started to play the instrument myself, I was drawn to particularly the band. Now, a group that had three of the greatest singers ever. That's right. But the guy that wrote the songs didn't sing. That's right. Robbie didn't sing. He sang a bit of harmony, but he didn't really feature as a lead vocalist. Right. And those two experiences of, of really always being very aware that the songs were created by somebody and getting to know the names of those songwriters and the fact that many of them had a fame that in some cases was superior to that of the people who sang those songs.
1: It's fascinating. I've always wondered. There's there was something about the alchemy of the band that I know Robbie wrote the songs, mm. but clearly he was draw, he was drawing on. There was something with that group that he was drawing on. There was some kind uh, of
0: yeah. I think that's for. I mean, I'm sure. You what know, an the, incredible thing to um, have not just Livon's anecdotal memory of Arkansas, yep. but to have Rick Cohen and, and uh, Richard Manuel's voices. To imagine melodies for and the fact that they also wrote at that time in the earlier days they also wrote melodies some of the most beautiful songs the band ever recorded were were you know wheels on fire yeah. is is a rick Danko melody and uh, you know tears of rage is a richard Manuel melody with bob dylan so i mean all of this seems very obscure maybe to people but that's the way i learned it because my my father came from jazz and therefore the songwriters of the previous generations the music that my grandfather would have heard when he came to America in the 20s the songs that have, exa- have been handed down to us through through the hands of jazz musicians and right. constantly reinvented that made those songwriters seem like very important fellows and that would be something that you'd want to get into that that tradition if not that business and nobody could guess when you're just writing something in your bedroom whether you're going to get heard much like whether you'd ever have a hit record or any such nonsense. You're not usually thinking that, and that's not what I'm trying to propose with this piece, is that this is, you might might get to your dream, but you're not going to get to your riches. You probably wouldn't go into music now trying to get rich.
1: I mean, I can speak about comedy. I I can't speak the way you can speak about music, but I can speak about so many young people have approached me over the years, and they've said, I want to do what you do. I want to be famous. Mm -hmm. And I think, well, you just lost me because I swear to God, when I got involved in all of this, there was always a dream that I might become a known person doing it, and wouldn't that be kind of fun? Yeah. But what came first was the enthusiasm and the desire, and that came from watching everything from Monty Python to old Jack Benny to Mm. W.C. Fields to the Marx Brothers to... I, I think it works the same way in comedy and in music. I think they're very similar. It's a lot about rhythm and notes and timing. But it starts with, I've got to know this. And what you describe really beautifully in this audio book is you you talk about, for a while you had a guitar, this old, beat-up, worthless Spanish guitar, but you never touched it. And then I think if your parents had hired a professor to come by and teach you the guitar, it would not have gone well. What happened was you heard this one song by Fleetwood Mac, Peter Green's song, Man of the World, World, Mm. and you thought, it got to you, and I know what you're talking about because I know that song, and it fits that this would be the song that you would hear that would make you think, I've got to get inside that tune somehow, and if it kills me, I'm going to learn how to play it on that shitty guitar over there on the wall.
0: It's a very odd thing that happened about that because... I, I came to understand when I got older and I got a little more fluent with with one instrument and that obviously I not having any brothers and sisters I only had my own experience apart from forming this this group of you know subterfuge with my best friend I never really understood that I had any kind of gift of, of an ear for music until I was much older so. I wasn't attracted to learning any of the three-chord songs. I did actually, believe it or not, take classical guitar lessons for about 3 weeks and could not get along with the what they call tablature. Yes, yes. which is a kind right. of way of notating the fingering of the guitar. I found that even more confusing than right. actual notated music and could not. It was like trying to trim your mustache in the in the uh, in the mirror and, you know, at eleven, it was been unusual that I had that moustache in the first place. But I mean, <laughs> the, the, but it really was. I just could not get to grips with it, and so back in the corner it went until I was thirteen or fourteen, whatever year, whatever age I was. Fourteen, I think, when Man of the World came out. I was youngest in my year at school, and somebody in a, probably in an upper year had. The chord changes written out in chord symbols. And it really was like, uh, I've said this story several times, but it is really true. It was almost like, have you seen this picture of Diana Dawes in her underwear? <laughs> you know, it was like something yes. furtive about it being had. If you play these, if you put your fingers on the guitar, this sound will come out and you can do. And the words were written out with the chord uh, shapes, uh, writ, you know, drawn, little boxes with where the fingers went. And I just studied and studied and studied. I realize now that the song is actually really complicated uh, and a very odd song to pick as a novice one. So in writing this piece, I had to almost think my way back to what it would have felt like if I had uh, you know, picked up the guitar and learned one chord, then a second. I, I think I had made that attempt once or twice and literally gone through the C to F roadblock and just that this is not for me. Maybe I can play the euphonium or something instead. Coming from a line of, I think
1: you'd have had just as much success. I,
0: I'm not so sure. But some people <laughs> would have said, yes, it would have kept, would have kept this quiet more. That uh-huh, would have been a good uh-huh. thing. But um, I come from a line. You know, I come from uh, t- two generations of brass players. So mm-hmm. that was the start of it, and that that gave me quite a, a combo. And then I realised that learning the chords of Man of the World actually sort of really didn't lead me in the the analogy of learning a a flashy guitar solo. You just learn that one solo. You don't know any other songs or any other solos. I had to then humble myself to go back and go through the rudiments. But it was at that moment that I stumbled on this. If I start from a different place... I'll I'll be able to play more songs right. more this readily. This
1: one song yeah. got you in the door. Yeah, and, and that's really all
0: I'm trying to do with this piece. It's, I mean, I'm not on some mission to flood the world with millions of guitar players. That's a lot of competition for me. I'm still in the business. <laughs> we game. have enough. I'm, we I'm, have enough. lots of extra guitar players right. out there trying to get the gigs. But, but I, I do I, I have tried to say it because at the end of it, all the other reasons why you play that you play to give praise, to to lament, to 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 seduce. You know, you have to acknowledge some of the nefarious reasons why one might play instruments just to gain attention. Like you say, narcissism, that's part of it. Holding a guitar is great. If you have a big nose like me, Pete Townsend put it out, having a guitar in your hands distracts from having a large nose.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I wore glasses. I'm curious what you think of the fact that famously there's the stories of the lads in Liverpool wanting to know what the B7 was, you know, and – No one knew how to make a B7. And so, and then uh, I think, you know, George and Paul heard, there's a bloke across town. If we take this bus and then that (laughs) bus and then that bus, this guy will show us how to make a B7. And he did. And then they had that magical chord that you need to play pretty much every Elvis song from the Sun Session era. You've got to have the B7. And so... It was a quest. It's like the Tolkien creatures trying to find the magical ring. Mm. They needed to find the B7. You describe in How to Play the Guitar and Why how we now live in this era, and I'm familiar with it because I've discovered it didn't exist when I was learning the guitar, but. We now live in this era where I can pick any song off any of your albums, and I can plug it into an app called Chordify. This is not an ad for Chordify; I'm not getting paid. Mm -hmm. And they will play the song, your song, and they'll show all the chords in time. Everything is right at our fingertips, but something might get lost that there's no struggle because...
0: And also the feeling, and there is something really, I mean, I'm not saying, oh, it was better in the old days, but... People will be familiar and probably still familiar if they if they frequent their local record emporium. You know those places where there's still a, a record shop that's curated in some way. People say, "No, not that record. That one. You need that one." That that was part of the process too of learning somebody to point you in the way. In the same way as the Beatles talk about somebody across town that knew B seven that liberated them to play those Elvis songs. I think there's something to that. I think the the instantaneous availability doesn't come with it complete understanding. It's it's like getting a toothache and reading, you know, the possible causes of that toothache on the internet without a qualified medical doctor next to you. 20 minutes later, you've got a brain tumour, right? You, or, or your leg is going to drop off. <laughs> yeah, or, yeah, Or you've got some blood disease right. or whatever it is. You can convince yourself of that with unqualified information. We don't even want to go into how bad unqualified information can be in the world. But in terms of simply playing music, it doesn't follow that just because everything is available everything of value is understood. Yes. And and the, yep. the very rarity of music, when I feel fortunate in a way, although it felt frustrating and I even wrote songs about it that I had to tune in the radio at certain times of the day and week uh-huh. to hear the songs that I wanted to hear, it did make those moments when that record came on really stick with me. And uh, the, the instant availability of it isn't necessarily preferable because it makes you blasé yes. about how easy. And that's that's all I'm trying to say. I'm not trying to say I know better than somebody much more skilled. There are more methodical ways one could learn. And I didn't set out to really write an instructional manual so much as ways n- not to prevent yourself from having the pleasure of playing. More importantly, just to play in the sense of a child, that you play without any embarrassment, without... Mm-hmm. Caution! You you jump off things you shouldn't jump off when you were a kid, and then you learn better that oh, I'm going to sprain my ankle if I do that. But you didn't half enjoy jumping off it when you were a kid, whatever the thing is. And and that's what I'm trying to sort of remind myself as much as anything, even the age I am now. That this was you know I recorded this during the period where we couldn't travel around so much, and I've done a lot of work in that time. I've made I, I don't know. I think we counted them up between. My producer Sebastian Chris and myself, I think we've worked on 11 records worth of music. That includes remixing mm-hmm. in a back catalogue that's that have come out in the interim. We have two records that are prepared for release next year. And I think that was a reaction to not being able to go out and do my regular job, which is right. travelling around and playing the songs that I've gathered together over 45 years maybe. But the responses to this interlude... Seem to be listening to you know choices were listening to like echoes, unreliable echoes, uh, withdrawing and kind of sort of getting this wayface kind of mopey music yep. coming out, uh, singing songs about isolation that are not as good as John Lennon's isolation, <laughs> which is nearly every song written about isolation, <laughs> or. Say, well, we're in a box that we didn't choose to be in. Right. Let's kick the fucking way out of here with whatever it is we do. Let's be alive to the to what we're doing. So and I feel like if anybody listens to my daft ramble, I hope they enjoy the ridiculous aspects of it that I relate that you know, that like I really did want to learn to play April Come She Will. Cause I knew a girl called April and then I thought maybe I could write a song about another girl I liked if i learnt minor chords and then I discovered that that song's actually in a major key. I mean, all these things where you're mishearing, all yep. the mistakes that you make along the way um, are, are all part of it, just as much as book learning, you know, and I think it's true of every subject really. I, I've never yet used algebra in real life, but I still studied it at a time. I think sometimes you taught things to teach you how to learn.
1: I've used algebra several times during this interview. Have you? Yeah, yeah. I'm a, I, I, my you know, mind it didn't, it didn't show. No, my mind works on so many yeah. levels. Yeah, Novus, uh, well, you yeah. just couldn't believe it. You know, I, I, I would have to ask. But you've had a very unusual experience, which is that you wrote, co-wrote songs with Paul McCartney. And I've thought, how did you not step outside yourself in that moment and think of the boy in London, Liverpool, yourself, listening to this? rock god and now you're with him were you able to detach all of that and just get down to the business and write the do the work i actually was uh, i i think that i've been a Paul enough and i've seen
0: the you know it is a balance that i've seen some quite eminent people completely lose their minds in his co- in the, the his company yeah. briefly and I had to remind myself every day that I went to work to sit opposite him, like just as we're sitting here only with two guitars and a, note, and a couple of notebooks, that he hadn't hired a, a, a nine-year-old to come and write songs with him. You know, he didn't hire me in that sense, but I hadn't invited. He'd invited me whatever age I was, 33 or 4 or something. Or maybe I was older than that, I can't even remember. But you know, I was supposed to be there at that moment. I wasn't stepping into anybody's shoes, that would be... and. You know that is often, I think, the strange thing when there's a level of fame that probably very few of us can 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 imagine. That people have a lot of dreams about those those people, and I obviously imitated. I, I had a I I had briefly had one of those, Beetle wigs when I was eight or nine. No, you know, really, plastic hat molded like hair. <laughs> I mean, I also worked in a cosme- I wish you still I, had that and wore it around. No, no. Well, I mean, I th- I think I wore it once and realized that it was, it was such a hideous look. Yeah. I looked like, I didn't even know who the Three Stooges were, but I looked like one. <laughs> of them.
1: But, um, you look like Moe, I'm sure. I look
0: yeah. like, is it Moe that it's I It's Moe. Like, you look like Moe. I
1: didn't know this. Moe was the Beatles before the Beatles. Yeah. yeah.
0: And then, you know, but the same way as when I worked for Elizabeth Arden, when I was writing my first record, I was still working in a day job. I could get cheap lipstick and mascara you know they had a company yeah. store where you could get the seconds it never occurred to me to put it on you know i, I like during the glam era yeah i was working the back end of the glam era it just with this face you know we're both patties you know it, it just <laughs> doesn't work uh-huh. it, it just doesn't work uh-huh. this you know it was sort of like this pasty kind of skin like with the rouge on it, it would just look awful yes and it just never occurred to me to visualize myself in that that kind of fantasy way so i think again it's probably something to do with the fact that i saw how workaday day making music could be for, through my father's experience mm-hmm. and then i had all the, the same kind of kid and teenage magic of like the first time i saw marvin Gaye on television or the supremes you know like they came over and there was a ready steady go dedicated to motown well, you call Motown, we call Kamala, um, uh, acts. And it was just like, oh, yeah, so we can have like four lumpy lads from Bolton in beetle suits or we can have Stevie Wonder. Yes. You know, like suddenly yeah, yeah, yeah. another world exists that right. we didn't know about. And that keeps on happening. So I've been very, very fortunate in the people that I have worked with. I mean, this week, I have to tell you this because I think you'll appreciate it. You mentioned Paul. Yeah. That was the most wonderful thing we wrote some really good songs we recorded them together which that part was thrilling to sit you know to write a song with paul mccartney go downstairs from his writing room into a studio and harmonize together wow okay that was like one of the most and those are by far the best versions of those songs i at the risk of offending it better than the versions he recorded of yep. them better than the versions i recorded of the ones that i cut like two days ago i was at capital studios a mile from here Yep. With a thirty piece orchestra and a rhythm section, cutting two songs I wrote with Bert Bacrack. Oh my god. With Bert in the studio. Yeah. Now you know, work out the arithmetic. I mean, he won't mind me saying he's he ninety-three this year. And by the end of the day, I was completely exhausted from the the intensity of singing those songs, trying to do my best, singing live in the booth with the thirty piece orchestra being conducted by Vince Mendoza the ringery, incredible rhythm section, and watching Bert stand up at the board and then go, bar 61, we've got to get that downbeat. Elvis, you're not singing the melody right at bar 12. Jesus. You know, and by the end of the day, we have these two beautiful songs we're going to issue next year as part of a package celebrating the... It'll be 21 years since Painted From Memory came out next yeah. year. And I thought, everything I ever wanted to be as a songwriter is embodied in being the lyricist for two Burt Bacharach songs, realized at this level. Yes. Like at the highest possible level with the group, with musicians who were totally committed to the job in hand. Right. And at the end of the day, when he came in to thank them, stood up and gave him a standing ovation. Wow. And I mean, that's about as emotional an experience as I've had in a studio. Yeah. Uh, and, and I've had a lot of really ma- magical things, but, you know, I... I do feel fortunate that some of the things that I've dreamed of. This is a funny question that's proposed by journalists quite a lot. What would the twenty-one or twenty-two-year-old you that say say to the person that did this? That that in with right. the implication that there's something you betrayed or or, or no. that you didn't keep as a part of the pact. And I'm going, one, I could never have imagined most of the things that have happened to me, and many of the unusual things are, are sort of. They're not a side issue because 15 songs with Paul McCartney, maybe as many as 30 songs written with Bert Bacharach, you know, a half a dozen songs written with Alan Toussaint and the numerous other people I've collaborated with is not the main part of my output as a songwriter. That's hundreds of songs that I wrote on my own and play in shows to this day. I'm opening, you know, a tour next week. That's what I wanted to do all along. But nevertheless, in ma- writing this piece, I don't know if anybody can learn to play the guitar from listening to me talk, but they, can, I can maybe take, make people laugh about the fear they might have about not doing it. Yes. Because I've just been incredibly fortunate that yeah. all these things have unfolded from getting past that chord of F. Yes.
1: yes, yes. What I really feel about this how to play the guitar and why is that it also has nothing to do with playing the guitar, (laughs) which is really lovely. It's just nice. It's an hour and a half listen. It's also very funny. I can tell that part of you wanted to be a goon show comedian or you wanted to make those sound effects. You wanted to play. You're doing that. Your philosophy's coming out. And the journey's coming out, which, you know, I'll go back to any journalist that says what would the 20-year-old Elvis Costello think about what the, you know, 50-year-old Elvis Costello, it's a journey. You'd have no idea what they were talking about. The yeah, 20-year-old I mean, would be... we all look <laughs> at old pictures and go, what was
0: I thinking when I bought that shirt, those shoes? Yeah, that exactly. That We all yeah. have that moment. And, and I'm no different than that, of course. And uh, there's something inherently ridiculous about playing rock and roll in a great way. That's why you have to keep the idiot... And there's no accident that the Beatles were on Parlophone, the label that on which Peter Sellers recorded and the Goons recorded, I'm sure they were delighted to be in the studio with George Martin. George Martin sim- was the Goons show producer. He was the producer of yeah. those. Yeah. Uh, Spike Milligan, you know, is like somebody I just adored, yep. you know, who is the less well-known of the Goons because Peter Sellers fame as a movie actor. But um, as I said at the beginning, you know, the, the radio comedy... It's a very important part of just the ritual of living in England in those days because we didn't have 24-hour rock and roll radio. So Sunday afternoons, you would there would be shows like Round the Horn. Well, Round the Horn, there's a great name for English. That explains English comedy right there. Yep. The man is called Kenneth Horn. Round the Horn suggests voyage. But the word horn itself is inherently double entendre, you know. <laughs> so it's taken much further than that. The characters that appeared in, in Round the Horn included an outrageously gay couple that <laughs> spoke in, in Polare, you know, in, in uh-huh. arcane gay slang. And they said the most unbelievable things in the 1960s when homosexuality was it's illegal. Criminal, was illegal? Yeah, yeah. You know, it was illegal to be gay. So there was a subversive element of them infiltrating mainstream British comedy, and this guy played straight man to it, even though his name was Horn. It was inherently a joke right there saying everybody in the face, pardon that you know that is a lot of English comedy is what my father used to call bum belly and poe that the jokes are essentially something to do with going to the toilet <laughs> your belly either the size of it or the how euphonious it is uh-huh. And the pow, which is the chamber pot. So yeah. anything to do with bodily function is inherently You just fun. described
1: uh, 32 years of my comedy career. I wanted to end, just speaking of comedy, if you did something for me, you probably won't remember this, but years and years ago, you recorded a piece for us which bashes and wobbles around the internet and people bring it up to me all the time. A quick comedy sketch. And uh, you were so funny in it. You're sitting there very, playing it very straight, and I play you, Allison, and I urge people to look this up because you are so goddamn funny in this. I'm playing you, Allison, and I'm playing it so, so soulfully, and I'm looking at your eyes, and I remembered how hard this was to shoot because I didn't think I could play this song to you, but I did, and I'm playing it, and I'm playing it very soulfully, and you're listening, and at just the right time, you reach over with wire cutters <laughs> you start cutting the strings on my guitar and then there's a pause and I look at you and you look at me and I start to about to go strum again and you reach over and cut the remaining string. <laughs> Please go look at that. It is
0: It's it's very hard to do that kind of thing. I mean uh, Oh no, no, I think, you get it. It's it's like the Marx brothers, you mentioned the Marx brothers, yeah, yeah. you know, and the Beatles yeah. having that legend of 10,000 hours or whatever it's yeah, supposed yeah, to be. Yeah. That will look the reason the Marx brothers could walk up that that harpo could walk up to somebody, pull their tie out, pull shears and cut it. Yeah. That's years of being in vaudeville to do that. Have you ever tried to cut somebody's tie off? It's not easy. It's not easy. And they get
1: angry. They get Uh, angry
0: quickly. And uh, it's around the neck, and then you've got an angry red-faced person coming at you. (laughs) Yeah, And really, the only thing to do then is kill them.
1: Oh, and you have to. And I've done it. Well, uh, look up that clip, please, people, uh, because you are a vaudevillian in that moment. Your timing was absolutely fantastic, and that clip keeps coming back as some of people's you know, thirty years of me doing late night comedy, and people still say to me, "When you tried to play Allison for Elvis Costello, and he cut the strings on your guitar, and how quietly and with great dignity you do it—it's uh, it, one of my favorite things." I'm going to wrap this up, but uh, this is an unequivocal joy for me to get to talk to you. You're—you're you're just one of my all-time favorite artists, and you're so thoughtful about everything. That you've done and the complexity of it all, I think it comes off beautifully in "How to Play the Guitar" and why. And I was so excited today. I've never done this, but I brought my 1946. Maybe uh, can I see it? Yeah, yeah, can you I, can. It's it, uh, it, it's you, right here. You you don't have to strum it or anything, no, but I you know, like to strum it. But, I've but been I looking just, at it throughout the. I have an old Martin guitar, which is my prized possession. It's got no metal in the neck because. The U.S. had embargoed metal during World War II. And this is from what year? 46. I just thought, I want that in the studio to absorb the magic. I've been waiting my
2: time just to talk to you Being looking all down in the mouth and down at your shoes the baby, I've come to tell you the news I'll paint rainbows all over your blues Heard you've been spending a lot of your time up in your room And at night you've been listening to the dark side of the moon You don't talk to nobody If they don't talk to you So I came here to sing you a tune I give up is really all you have to say It's time to find a brand new style Cause this really ain't the way Let's go for a ride on my trampoline I can show you the prettiest mountains that you've ever seen Let's run to your closet Put on your blue sweet shoes I paint rainbows all over your blue. I paint rainbows All over your blues
1: Okay. All right. <laughs> uh, well, this is the happiest I've been in memory. John Sebastian. John B. Sebastian. I love that, that man. I've met him many great, times. One what of it?
0: the great songwriters in America. There's another one. The yeah. great American songbook should contain the man that wrote, Do You Believe in Magic? Yes. And... She's still a mystery, and six o'clock, and many, many others. So you didn't have to do it, and that beautiful song, just
1: so easy to love, and such a wonderful, wonderful voice. Well, you somehow did that, and then made it about someone else, which is a very gracious. Beautiful uh, I, thing I to don't do. think he wrote the song about
0: their line about dark side of the moon. I put that one in There's a you improved reference. on it, and yeah. you didn't cut the strings
1: off with the shears while I was doing it. Guess this, what? This is a beautiful. People, people. thought it was funny. When you stopped me from singing, (laughs) if I had stopped you from singing and playing, people would kill me. Ah. Elvis Costello, a true honor to be in your presence. How to play the guitar and why, if you have no interest in the guitar, listen to this. It's an hour and a half of your time. It's absolutely lovely, funny, sweet, evocative, poetic. Everything we need right now. So check it out. Elvis, thank you so much.
4: Thank you, my friend. Thank you. Okay, Conan. It's time for another review. The Reviewers. I love it when you are authoritative, David. It's <laughs> These hilarious. are all. Thank you so much. <laughs> you can't even do it. Oh God. These okay. are all real five star reviews from fans about your podcast. If you out there would like to leave us a review, just go to Apple Podcasts and please rate and review five stars. The first review comes from Shria, who writes. Wait, did you just ask people to leave? Give us five stars. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, we're not going to read a one star. Yeah. Maybe we should. Isn't that more honest?
3: No, no. Well, I don't think we want to you? know. Yeah, and what it's are probably
1: it? people I know. I care about people I'm related to, it. family. Yeah, yeah. you it's hate. Like, hey, that's my brother Neil. Uh, I I I think sometime we should read a, a one star no.
3: review. You will spiral. That would be a disaster. Because oh. now, what
4: if everyone listening to this goes and leaves a one star review and your ratings just? Oh, I see. I refuse to listen. I will only listen to five stars.
1: Great. Um, and plus there are cash prizes if you leave five stars. Oh. the Previous was not true. Oh. All right. That was my lawyer.
4: Go okay. Ahead. First review comes from Shria who writes, question. Hi, guys. <laughs> this first line. Matt, I hope you read this. Well.
1: Bro. Ah. Sorry. Ah. sorry,
4: Shria. <laughs> Shria, Matt's on paternity leave as it's called in the business. Go ahead. I saw Conan's latest post on Instagram with David. His teeth look extremely white. Does he have fake teeth? Thanks, Shria. Ooh. Do you have fake teeth or do I have you, fake teeth? You. What are fake teeth? Teeth that are not real. I don't understand what that is. What do you like, mean? Like dentures? I guess. Oh, veneers. 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 Oh God. Oh Jesus, yeah. I've
1: got some <laughs> veneers on my- on my, uh, Do you really?
3: Well, aren't yeah. your front teeth all fucked up? Y-
1: yes, Why? thank you. I grew up, thank you. I grew up in uh, Boston, Massachusetts in the 70s. Uh, I regularly got my face punched in. <laughs> So uh, <laughs> yes, I got veneers, but they're not big fake. I don't have big fake chompers. They just, they, they're they just on the front right here. Like the four teeth in the front have a nice little, you know, veneer on them. What do you think, David? So what do you guys think? I
4: think they're great they yeah. have teeth. Wait, yeah. is it
1: really, cause you got them knocked out? No, I didn't get them knocked out. Do you really uh. think that people beat me? I was yes. beaten up once. I yes. be shocked. I was beaten up once in uh, 1981. We don't need to get into that, Boston's North End. Not important, smashed my, they smashed my nose. Um,
3: What did the doctor say uh, about your nose?
1: My mother came to the emergency room and said, is my son's nose okay? And he said, okay, it's a bag of bones. He was British. Shout out if you're out there, Dr. Constable. Never forget that. Anyway, um, anyone listening to this can imagine why someone in the north end would want to beat the shit out of me. It was a couple of guys, to be honest with you. Actually, it was an entire village. It they just called, keeps getting bigger. They called my mother at work and they told her, your son was attacked by a mob. <laughs> and her reaction was like, well, that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Anywho, <clears throat> no, it's not because of that. But you know, I grew up in that era where you drank, we had this drink called like Zarex that was pure sugar. I mean, it was a terrible time in the 70s. Kids, I know a lot of youngsters out there, listen, just be glad you didn't grow up in the 70s. And, you know, during the hostage crisis, I gnashed my teeth a lot. Uh, (laughs) And during the Carter presidency in general, uh, I compensated for his uh, failed economic policies by just chewing a lot of sugar cubes. Uh, And so, yeah, I had some, I'm I'm, I'm an honest person. Mm -hmm. I have, I don't think that's a, of all the cosmetic work a man can have done, uh, Mm -hmm. for me to have just a little bit of a porcelain veneer on the front teeth, I think that's fine. I also take very good care of my teeth. What's your name, Shria? Shria. Yeah, Shria. I, I resent any implication that my teeth are nice and white because uh, they are porcelain veneers. Yes, I'm sure that's 80% of the battle, but I also brush regularly. I also floss carefully and use various rinses, balms, creams, and ointments. This is
3: fascinating wow. podcasting. This is gripping.
1: I think we, we cracked the riddle Shreya, by asking a very personal and I think rude question, I gave you an, no, no, I gave you an honest answer, but also we found out that I was savagely beaten
4: in the (laughs) 70s in the North End by hundreds of people who set upon me. (laughs) Our next review comes from Going to Guides, who writes, you are a joy and a delight. Just listen to the latest episode where you ponder products to endorse like Clooney and his tequila. A wine cooler or rosé wine was mentioned. What if you created a fizzy wine cooler that was not rosé pink, but Conan Pompadour orange? I, for one, would buy it by the case. Anywho, I love you, Conan, and I get so happy when I see there's a new podcast episode to listen to. Let me know when the Coco Zay is ready to buy. XOXO, Shannon.
3: Coco Zay. I wish she had
4: said XOXO, Gossip, Gossip Girl. Girl. <sighs> oh,
1: Shannon, you know who would love this is uh, my manager, Gavin Pallone, constantly begging me, why aren't I doing some kind of big product integration yeah. that's going to make him a billionaire? And, you know, and he really was fascinated. He was like, you see what, Clooney, Clooney has this tequila, you know, he and Randy Gerber, they sold the company for a billion dollars. And I think, right, that's George Clooney. <laughs> mm-hmm. Nobody, like, that's a very, very handsome movie star. And people want to emulate what he's doing. There's not a goddamn person in America who's like, how do I capture that Conan magic with the ladies?
4: <laughs> Shannon.
1: No, Shannon, that's very nice of you, but I swear to God, no one, when they saddle up to the bar, says, What is Conan O'Brien drink? That's the drink for me. Or what's he wearing? I've got mm-hmm. to wear a Conan O'Brien suit. That says, this is a man who means business. <laughs> now, fizzy wine cooler probably kind of works.
3: Yeah, it yeah, does. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. an
1: orange. So an orange and and she had a pitch for the cocoa what? Cocosay. Cocosay and pompadour orange. I
3: like Zay. But I
1: just I honestly don't see. And this is not me being hard on myself. This is me being completely honest. I don't see anyone linking me to a product that's meant for socializing, Uh, having drinks. you know what I mean? I don't
3: know. Who's gonna say, let's get a
1: Cocosay? Seriously, someone. I
3: think it's gonna be funny. I think people will do it not to be like cool, but to be funny. Like, hey, I'll have a Cocosay and an orange drink, fizzy drink shows up. Like that's funny.
1: I don't know that people buy liquor because it's funny. Yeah, maybe not. I don't think so. And so I think like a bubblegum cigarette, what? Oh. You know, um, what about like a pompadour wig for Halloween? Just that like a
3: would... one-time, one seasonal thing? Well, You're you not can... gonna make that much money. You'll make like $4 and then Gavin will not be happy.
1: The best idea I've heard is a hair product.
3: Yes. Mm-hmm.
1: Like a pomade or something, a Conan pomade.
3: Yeah. You and should...
1: that, I mean, mm-hmm. but then again, I think I've been sticking with this hairstyle that I came up with like in the 80s, just because I realized my hair could do it and that's the only reason I did it. No one's ever emulated it. No (laughs) one's ever said, uh, you know, Jennifer Aniston, people wanted the Rachel. You yeah. know, George Clooney had that Caesar do or whatever he had on ER and everybody wanted it. No one, I've been sticking with this for like 35 years. Not one person has ever said, get me some of that. Me no Conan. one's ever gone to a barber and said, give me a Conan. Yeah. No one, not one person. So why is anyone going to buy the Conan pomade? They're not. There's not one product I can think of. And I implore my listeners, if you think there's a product that lines up with me, yeah, pitch it. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'll even cut you in. But I want it to be something realistic, not a joke like, okay, toilet seat. You know, no. <laughs> okay.
4: Why are you guys laughing?
1: Furniture.
4: No, no one wants to sit like Conan. What would the furniture be? I
3: don't know. I was thinking about Lenny Kravitz. He just did a thing with I think Crate and Barrel. He's and Lenny he's Kravitz. So cool. He's cool. He is so cool. I'll buy anything Lenny Kravitz tells me to buy.
1: Yeah, you know. Uh, okay, well, sorry, seems a little extreme. Oh, I um, love Lenny Kravitz. Oh yeah, Lenny Kravitz smoke that's detector. Cool. Yeah, that's cool. great. I want yeah. the I want the carbon monoxide detector Lenny Kravitz designed. No, I want one that's made that's approved. You know by OSHA.
3: Oh, Blaze says sunscreen.
1: Oh. Sunscreen has been pitched, but again, I don't think anybody wants to look like me. I'm freckled.
3: There's a lot of people who have your complexion who are like, what is the best sun protection? And then if they see your face on a bottle, they'll be like, that must be real good stuff. Yeah. Because he's still alive.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Still alive. I don't know, we've got to crack this because I do want a product that's just selling out on shelves and the money's just rolling in and i'm going to get a bentley yeah. and i'm going to wear a yachting cap <laughs> and just be an incredible douchebag mm. just drive around and be like the money's just pouring in from the sunscreen the pomade and the the coconzay coconzay Coco and i want to be really obnoxious about it just constantly be dropping huh. you have no idea how much money's coming in from that sunscreen <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> and guess what it doesn't even prevent cancer
3: oh no yeah we
1: did something so uh it just doesn't even function properly. <laughs> you're saying oh. this
3: publicly?
1: Well, I shouldn't. I forgot that this was a podcast.
3: Oh, okay. Mm. I
1: thought we were just talking in a car. Oh. Sometimes I forget. Listen, if I do come out w- with a sunscreen, I do promise it'll provide some protection.
3: Wow, you're uh, really selling it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sun
1: cancer. Uh, the numbers, the SPF may be inaccurate, but by the time they track that down, I'll be out of the country. Okay. Mm. I'll say it's a 50 when it's like a 15, you know? Wow. But it'll smell
4: like coconut. Okay. Thank you to all our reviewers today. And if you'd like to leave us a review, please go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review five stars. We might just read your review on the air.
1: Conan O'Brien needs a friend with Conan O'Brien, Sonam of Sessian and Matt Gorley. Produced by me, Matt Gorley. Executive produced by Adam Sachs, Joanna Solitaroff, and Jeff Ross at Team Coco, and Colin Anderson and Cody Fisher at Earwolf. Theme song by The White Stripes. Incidental music by Jimmy Vivino. Take it away, Jimmy. Our supervising producer is Aaron Blair, and our associate talent producer is Jennifer Samples. Engineering by Will Beckton. Talent booking by Paula Davis, Gina Batista, and Britt Kahn. You can rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts, and you might find your review read on a future episode. Got a question for Conan? Call the Team Coco hotline at 323-451-2821 and leave a message. It too could be featured on a future episode. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend on Apple Podcasts,
4: Stitcher, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded. This episode was produced and edited by me, Brett Morris.
2: This has been a Team Coco production in association with Earwolf